this week on the Backtable Podcast. I mean, the concept of a side gig is actually very nebulous because it can mean so many different things to so many different people, right? Does it have to be monetized or can you, it just be a hobby that you're doing for fun, right? And I consider it a pretty all-encompassing thing. It's just something that you're doing on the side that you take somewhat seriously for whatever reason, whether it's just because it brings you joy, right? Like you could be in a band and that could be your side gig and maybe you're making a little bit of money from it. Maybe you're not. I think in the strictest definition, most side gigs should generate revenue because they're quote unquote gigs, but we don't really stick by that. A lot of people end up monetizing their side gigs if they spend a lot of time on them because at some point you need to offset some of the opportunity costs. But for some people, it's really just a hobby and they share their hobbies and that's great too. Physician side gigs has sort of become a trendy name that has stuck, but the, the scope of what like my mission with the group really is to do is much greater than helping physicians get some extra revenue streams, although that is a core part of what we do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. A Navy fistula is a critical lifeline for end-stage renal disease patients on dialysis. See six-month outcomes from separate AV access maintenance trials evaluating PTA balloons, stents, and drug-coated balloons at Medtronic.com slash AVData. For more than a decade, Reflow Medical has designed and engineered medical devices that respond to unmet clinical needs. The Wingman Crossing Catheter with its unique extendable beveled tip and an expanded indication for CTOs. The Specs LP, created to meet the need for a low-profile version of the Specs shapeable support catheter. And the new line of core catheters that answers the call for a suite of effective tools to use in challenging PCI procedures. Now, back to the episode. Today, we've got a special interview I've been looking forward to. We're going to be talking about physician side gigs. We've had a number of previous guests that have pursued side gigs. Our listeners have probably remember we had the white co-investor, James Dahl on, who I think has probably become a full-time gig at this point for him. Azana Azeen, who came on a while back, I think it was episode 103, he talked about reviewing insurance claims. Naveen Goyle created Loud Capital, also probably a full-time gig. We most recently had Ben White and Elsie Cohen talking about coaching and blogging. Today, I'm, what I'm excited is we have basically the side gig guru, Dr. Nisha Mehta. Nisha, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for having me, Aaron. I am really excited to be here. Yeah, and just real quick on how we met. I've seen you on LinkedIn and I've seen your posts and I'm fully aware of, of what you've done, visited your website but I'm not a Facebook person. So I've never been in the Facebook group, but I do know others who have and find those groups very, very valuable and, and helpful, but also your website just has tons of information on it. So I do, I've visited your, your website a number of times, but for those who aren't familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about your background and like kind of tell us where you were in your career when you started Physician Sidekicks? Yeah, so I'm a radiologist by training. I'm a musculoskeletal and breast imaging trained. I really started physician side gigs as a mistake, honestly. I had a little bit of time between jobs when we were shifting from the research triangle to Charlotte. And that was unexpected because that was an unexpected move. And so I ended up with about six months off at that time. And I started doing some writing and some speaking, really writing predominantly. And it was really because I, for the first time in my life, had some time, downtime to just sit down and process some of what I was seeing in medicine. And so I started writing and some of those pieces got accepted 
expanded into some bigger outlets and really started gaining a lot of traction. And from that, people started asking me to speak or write for them. And that was the first time that I had ever explored the idea of a side gig. This was back in 2015. And I realized I really knew nothing outside of medicine, right? In terms of how do I get paid? What should I be charging? Like, how does this work with taxes? All of these things. So I decided to start this little community where I could ask questions because I did start I tried to go on to other side gigs communities that weren't physician exclusive. And I realized my questions were a lot different than a lot of the questions other people were asking just in terms of how do I balance this with work? What do I need to know? What can I do? What can I do? All of those sorts of things. And so it was like, I really need to be able to talk to other physicians who kind of get my situation when I'm asking these questions. So I started this small group that really was not meant to be anything except for a convenient way to bring six or seven people together, basically. And really just people started adding each other. And over time, the groups just grew and grew and the scope of what we covered grew. And we started out as just side gigs. And then we expanded to just, hey, not a lot of people know a lot about business and finance. And they kind of need to know that to be able to do the side gig. Let's teach business and finance. And then that expanded into, by that point, we'd probably hit about fifteen to 20,000 people, maybe more. Actually, we're probably about 30,000, 40,000 people before we realized that people were sort of starting to use the group for purposes that had nothing to do with business and finance because they were like, well, there's more doctors here than any other place I know. So actually, can I just ask about something else? And so we split off another side community called Physician Community where you could talk about all the things. So long story short, that community grew to about 163,000 members, I think. And so what we're at right now, we've got about 25,000 people on the wait list waiting to join. And it has just kind of taken me on this crazy journey over the last five or six years. And you mentioned that in the beginning, there was like this core group of people, six or seven docs. Were any of those mentors or people that you had sought out that maybe had experience speaking or writing? No, they were just other people that I knew that were doing things on the side in some capacity or the other. I mean, like I said, this was never meant to turn into, it was literally just, who do I know? Yeah. We could have a text message chain, but at the time it wasn't like WhatsApp or Slack or any of those things were really in operation. And so Facebook just seemed like a a good place to do it. Exactly. What year was that again? 2016. So Basically, you had this break, but it wasn't like something in your personal career where you were feeling burnt out or anything like that. It was more just like, hey, I got some time. I'm going to write. And one opportunity led to another. You wanted to put like this sort of group together that all shared this passion or interest in side gigs. When was the first time you thought of calling it a group for side gigs? I mean, where does this term side gig come from? Can you define it for our audience? Yeah, I mean... The concept of a side gig is actually very nebulous because it can mean so many different things to so many different people, right? Does it have to be monetized or can you? it just be a hobby that you're doing for fun, right? And I consider it a pretty all-encompassing thing. It's just something that you're doing on the side that you take somewhat seriously for whatever reason, whether it's just because it brings you joy, right? Like you could be in a band and that could be your side gig and Maybe you're making a little bit of money from it. Maybe you're not. I think in the strictest definition, most side gigs should generate revenue because they're quote unquote gigs, but we don't really stick by that. A lot of people end up monetizing their side gigs if they spend a lot of time on them because at some point you need to offset some of the opportunity costs. But for some people, it's really just a hobby and they share their hobbies and that's great too. But yeah, I guess technically in the strictest definition, a gig would generate revenue. That's certainly not how we... Physician side gigs has sort of become a trendy name that has stuck, but the, the scope of what like my mission with the group really is to do as much 
greater than helping physicians get some extra revenue streams, although that is a core part of what we do. Right. I got that feeling when I looked at your website. It's more about helping docs practice medicine on their own terms, which I, I love that because that's really, I kind of struggled through that. You know, I'm kind of in my mid-career and I, what I realized was like, I lost the autonomy that I thought I was going to have practicing medicine. I've been trying to get that back. My wife's a physician. She's an ENT. So we're kind of like you and your husband. I forget, what what is your husband practice? My husband is plastic and reconstructive surgery. Okay. So you're married to a surgeon, you know, very similar. And so we're busy, right? And you have kids, you realize we have zero bandwidth here, right? And And I've heard you give other interviews where you talk in detail about that. It's like, you're lucky that you have this dual income, but you lose time and you lose time with family and you lose time to do these other, these fun things. I wanted to kind of find out you did writing, you did speaking, you started doing those. And are there any other ones that you found to be really like, I think you mentioned real estate on a prior interview. What are your personal side gigs before we dive into like what's available on the platform? Personally, I do paid writing. I do paid speaking. At some point, I did more consultative slash like, I would never really say that I did coaching per se, but I did some like advising slash consulting. And then real estate has been a big one for our family as well, just in terms of having something that was more passive. So those are kind of the bigger side hustles, I guess, that we have engaged in. I'm trying to think. I mean, I've dabbled in a few of the other things that we talk about on the group, but in terms of mean things that have really stuck, a lot of what I've done has been in that realm. And now I do a lot of things that are just for my own interest. So I do a lot of advocacy work and that's obviously not paid. So I don't know if it counts as a side gig, but it is something that I really enjoy doing on the side. You make some good points there with side gigs can be something that you make money, right? That that provides value to your life, I guess. But what I found with my side gig with Backtable was it really gave me energy. And I feel like that's another good definition of a, of a side gig where it should give you energy, not sap energy, right? Yes. And I think that that's one of the biggest mistakes that people make when they're thinking about side gigs is just this idea that they've got to get to a certain number. And then it turns into a second job, right? And it for me, I think one of the nicest things about being a physician is that you do have a primary source of income that is quite substantial. And the other stuff is kind of icing on the cake. And even if you're trying to transition that side gig into a main gig, or if you're trying to transition that side gig into a substantial enough revenue stream that you can cut back a little bit on your main gig or whatever your you know end game goal is, you've got time to get there because you don't have that pressure of, I got to make this business work tomorrow. So in my mind, the people that I see hit it the hardest and are like, I got to do this in three months, they're the ones that burn out and are like, why did I put this on myself? Whereas I think the fun part of my journey has always kind of been there's no pressure from a financial standpoint to earn revenue from these things. And in some ways, it's actually, I think, has really served me to my advantage because my threshold to walk away from the table if something is not fun or is not something that seems like it's worth my time is basically non-existent. So I will just kind of say, nope, no, thank you. I don't want to do that. And that's really increased my ability to negotiate to make sure that this stays fun for me and stays exciting for me and is always something that's filling my cup as opposed to just one more thing that I have to do in the scope of, as you were alluding to, so many other things that we all have on our plates with just our jobs, our spouse's jobs, potentially, or potentially our kids' responsibilities, potentially whatever else we have, right? Parents, this, that, and the other thing. So for me, it was really important to have flexibility in my side gigs. And for other people, it's not necessarily 
the thing, but the thing I like about writing, the thing I like about speaking, the thing I like about real estate is that none of it is getting in the way of my day to day unless I want it to, right? So I can always say yes or no to a consulting thing. I can always say yes or no to a writing gig or a speaking gig. And so I've really tried to mold my personal side gigs to things that fit my life as opposed to dictate my life. That's a key point because where I've seen people kind of go wrong and, and I want to get into like, you know, maybe some challenges that you've seen doctors get into with their side gigs is they do feel like they have to put all this extra time and energy into it. You lose the autonomy that you're trying to get from it, right? That's what I hear when you talk is like you have the autonomy over, you have choice over what you're going to do if and when you want to do it. That's, I think, like the ideal side gig for a doc. But like seeing the size of your platform, I know you put a lot of time and effort into it. So my next question was kind of like, how are you balancing it? Did you cut back clinically? Yeah. So two points. One is, is obviously, depending on what the goals for your side gig are, you're going to approach things differently. But I do think it's really important to make sure that whatever you're doing is something that's sustainable. And I don't think people necessarily put a lot of thought into sustainability at the beginning. And I know I didn't. You know, I just kind of was playing it by ear. And actually, the way that PSG sort of evolved, it became unsustainable very quickly because it was growing at a rate that was like far beyond my capacity to dedicate time to it. And so, you know, I was working full time as a radiologist. My husband was working full time as a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. And the group was just kind of exploding in the background. And what I realized is that if I didn't find ways to put boundaries around things and if I didn't find ways to hire people and if I didn't find ways to like you know, at the beginning, like I would verify that every single person was a physician and that list just got longer and longer for people waiting to be approved. But, you know, I was doing everything at 10 o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night after my kids went to bed because I would basically work my full time job. But then I'd come home and I'd be with the kids until they went to sleep. And then after that, like if my husband and I wanted to watch a movie or whatever, like he has a pretty early bedtime. He's like a classic surgeon, like goes to bed early, wakes up early. And so I would wait till he went to bed to then start working on this quote unquote side gig. But sometimes that meant I was doing it at like 2 a.m. or whenever, right? And so I would basically like, at some point I basically routinely got into the position of falling asleep working. And I was like, this is not healthy. you know. And my husband, of course, like is an avid podcast listener. And in the mornings he would be sending me these podcasts about the importance of sleep and this and that. And it was just like, oh, okay, like something's got to change. And he basically at that point was like, you need to shut this thing down. Like it is taking up so much time. People are always like expecting things of you that you don't have time to give. And like, what do you, you know, it doesn't generate any revenue. Like remind me why again, like this thing is dictating our lives when, and I was kind of like, oh, okay, like I got to do something. So when we hit around 15,000 members, I think we took on our first few sponsors. And that was predominantly really to just be able to pay people to do the things that I didn't have the time to do. Because I still wasn't at a point where I wanted to cut back clinically. I mean, I think a lot of doctors will pursue side gigs because they're burnt out clinically and they really want to be able to cut back on something. But for me, that was never the goal to cut back. And so I was trying to find a way to balance these two things together. So I really loved my job and I had a really hard time actually making the decision to cut back eventually a few years later. But so the first step for us was really hiring people to do things that I couldn't do. So hiring people to verify that people were doctors, hiring people to like moderate or go through the things or take people's messages and triage them or whatever. And then finally, I guess about four years in, I think we had already past 100,000 members or something like that. And then I, I went ahead and cut back clinically. 
I guess it was just pre-pandemic. So at the end of 2019, I made the decision to switch from my full-time job to working per diem at the same job that I was per diem for. And between there, there were many iterations of, can I go part-time? Can I whatever? And my job was more, they weren't very open to the idea of me going part-time. And at some point it just became so not sustainable that I was like, okay, I'll work for you guys, but I'll work for you guys per diem. And that way, I can have a little bit more control of how this goes down. So that was kind of eventually what happened. So I now work per diem for the for the group I used to work full time for. And, you know, running these communities really has become my full time job. Yeah, it's great, though, because it was like a gradual transition. Right. And hearing your story, I can relate because I kind of had similar transition where, you know, I used to work full time as an IR. And when the kids were little, they went to bed at like whatever, seven thirty, eight o'clock. So you could put them to bed get a few hours of work in. And then we were always sleep deprived because the kids were little. Like that was just part of life. Kids get older, they stay up later. They want to be around you in the day. So what I started doing was getting up super early to work on it. And then it's, it's just like unsustainable. And then you're right. You get to a point where you just have to hire people and that has its own challenges, find the right, finding the right team, managing them. But it's just funny because I listen to you and I think I, I, I was there. I remember that. And I remember those points. They're like breaking points, right? Where you have to make a change in order to continue on. I think for me, everything has been dictated by necessity. It was sort of like, okay, I don't have a choice. Either I like do this or I just shut this down. I do this or I shut it down. And it was just a bunch of steps like that. And like you said, hiring is very challenging. And for us, you know, the groups are open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. So there is like literally constant, there's an employee working at every hour of every day, which is just finding that coverage. It's like call coverage. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, and you know, if somebody calls out during a holiday or something like that, then you know, that's me still on backup. It's funny because my job before this, I had such great work-life balance. And I started out my career talking about work-life balance, right? I, I mean, like I had this job where I would go to work at eight, I would come back at five and like, that was my day. And there was no nights, there were no calls, there were no weekends, there were no holidays. And I basically, once I left work, did not think about work until I parked my car the next morning. And now there's just this constant sort of, I mean, yes, there's a lot of people that are helping, but I'm always on call. Yeah, it never ends. But I like to think about the 162,000 plus members, right? A massive number of physicians. And you look at that number and you look at going back to like what gives you energy and what takes it away. I feel like this is definitely the case with PSG. I love that acronym because it reminds me of Paris Saint-Germain. My kids suddenly think my business is so much cooler now <laughs> um, after the World Cup. Is Mbappe working for you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, but going back to what I was saying, basically the impact that you're making is so huge with PSG and it doesn't compare to like you may have read 200 studies at work that day but the impact still is not quite I don't know that energizes me that the fact that Backtable makes more of an impact probably than my clinical practice at this point and I'm and I wonder I was just curious to know if that you kind of feel that way as you transition it's funny right you go through various stages with your business and and there's different like pressures at different times and now it's sort of like now I feel like we've grown this community that's bigger than me or bigger than the business. And it's almost like I feel this very compelling need to kind of give back to that community, right? It's been, it's interesting when like the guiding principles of your business are no longer, you know, how much money I'm going to make or how much whatever. It's really like, what can I do to maximize the impact of what we've brought together? So like, 
can we empower physicians to like stand up for themselves? Can we empower physicians to respect their worth? Can we teach people the skills that they didn't learn in medical school? Can we come together and support a colleague when they're in a time of stress? Can we provide them the resources that they need? Like all of those things are kind of what drives the mission behind what we do now. And that makes it really fun because there's no pressure on any end to do anything except for achieve the most impact possible. So like when the pandemic hit and we were watching people come up with COVID stuff in real time, you know, what's working at your hospital? What's not working? Do you guys have an open bed? Do you not have an open bed? You know, getting people transferred, going through some of the challenges that everybody was going through together. And then when we all came together as a community and actually like directly worked with Pelosi's office to get physicians $70 billion in the stimulus package. Like that was really cool because we just literally, when we talked to Pelosi's office, it was, they were like, well, we're not going to give doctors any money, right? Like, and we're kind of like, okay, but physician private practices are small businesses too, right? And what can we do to make sure that these businesses are sustainable? But I think that those are the kinds of things that we just rally as a community, right? Like over in a week, we had over 300,000 signatures on a petition. I was on like Wolf Blitzer. I was on Anderson Cooper. You know, like we got on all these things and then we were basically able to leverage that momentum to be able to make some real changes for practices. And I think that sort of stuff for me is just like really great. Now I'm kind of like, well, how do we take on things like on a bigger level? Right. And that part is really fun. So yeah, there is some point where you're just kind of like, now that you've got this great contingent of people, what can you do to like really make a difference? I get the sense it's way more cohesive than, for example, AMA, right? Where a lot of people now are, what does the AMA do for me anymore? You know, especially with everything that's going on, who's advocating for us? Who, you're kind of charting new territory. Like we create these platforms that are not traditional. They're not your standard society or, or association, but docs are gravitating towards them because there's clearly a need for it, Right. I think that I'm not discounting the AMA and, and whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think that there's a lot that the AMA does that people don't necessarily see. But that being said, I think there's a lot of strength in grassroots movements and grassroots change. For me, that's kind of the space that I want to play in where it's kind of what can we do to just empower everybody? And we can move a lot faster, right? Like we were basically given seven days by Congress to come up with a list of demands. And we were able to do that because we didn't have all the bureaucracy and the red tape of what a huge organization would have to do or the obligations that they may have to different lobbying partners or this or that or what, you know, we didn't have anything, right? There were no strings. So we were just like, this is what we want. This is what we need. This is how we're going to get through this pandemic. This is what you need to do for us. Here's how you need to protect us. And we were just able to basically leverage the community to come up with this huge document of this is what we need. And we had it on Pelosi's desk and within three or four days and it is amazing to see what we can do when we come together as a community. And I think there's always this assumption that doctors are powerless, but we are necessary. And, and people know that, but we have to kind of remind them of that sometimes. So yeah, for me, that advocacy side of things has just been so fun because we have 15% of the physician population or something like that, right? It's hard to know exact numbers, but we're somewhere between 15 to 20% of the practicing physician population in the U.S. That's incredible. We do have a lot of leverage if we choose to pull it together. Again, that that number is a massive number of physicians. So just real quick, because we've been talking a lot about the side gigs, and you mentioned there's the physician community as well. Can you just so our, our listeners know like what the difference is between the two, if they're looking for something in particular, where they go for one or the other? 
Yeah, so PSG is really predominantly where we do all of our business and finance education, all the discussion of side gigs. And that is really where we have a bunch of webinars. We do a lot of teaching. We do a lot of, of course, people are teaching each other. We do a lot of connection making over there. And we have this whole sort of telemarketplace arm where companies will come to us and say, hey, we need a consultant or we need this or we, you know, we need a brand representative. We need an expert witness and we'll help to bridge people to those opportunities. And so that's what Physician Side Gigs does. And then Physician Community is really this virtual doctor's lounge where people can talk about anything. So it can be, hey, I had my first lawsuit and I'm freaking out, like what's going to happen? Or it could be, I don't know how to manage this complex patient. Can somebody weigh in on something or point me to an expert that I can refer my patient to? Or it could be literally life as a physician sucks today and I just need somebody who like understands that to get it or I want to post this meme that only my doctor friends will get and I'll put that up there. It could be anything. So that's a lot of information, right? So you got people posting all kinds of stuff. How do you keep it organized? I don't know that there really is a method to the madness. I wish I could tell you I had some master plan. I mean, social media doesn't really work that way, right? Like when I started Community, my goal was for it to be primarily an advocacy organization and then sort of a place to put some other stuff. And it's really just taken on a life of its own. And so some days we can feel like we're like a relationship sort of thing where people are all talking about their relationships. And then other days we can feel like we're all talking about derm rashes. And other days we could feel like we're all rallying behind something that's going on nationally and like Medicare cuts or whatever. So it really just takes on its own tone every day over there. Physician side gigs is a lot more organized. We try really hard to curate that material a little bit better so that it's processed. But yeah, I mean, because of just everything that we allow to be discussed on community, it's sort of a free for all. And I think the Facebook algorithms kind of figure out who's interested in what and feeds it to them accordingly. So people kind of get what they want out of it. Is there a search feature? Yeah, that is the one good way to add. And sometimes people will hashtag things or will try to like pin things that are important or something like that. So we try a little bit to organize things, but that's why the website actually came into creation is to make sure that we had a place where we could curate. People wouldn't have to rely on the search function to find what they wanted if they had a very direct ask about something. I want to talk about the website in a minute, but before I get to that, I want to talk about policing these kinds of platforms. How do you police it? How do you filter out bad players or shameless self-promoters? Like how does that, you know, I know, I know that's got to be challenging. That I think has been probably, that's probably the thing that makes me want to quit <laughs> um, <laughs> the most. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is certainly the biggest headache in terms of making sure that people keep it a respectful colleague driven. You know, I, I think one of the dangers of social media is always that, um, a few people can make a place feel toxic really quickly and a few loud people can really dictate the way that the group is run. And so we have a whole process in place in terms of warnings versus things that will automatically get you kicked out versus things that if there's like hate speech or things like that, those things are just not tolerated, obviously. And I think people forget because it's sort of like, well, this is a group of physicians. And so I think the average person on the group is certainly very professional in most ways, but there's a certain anonymity to social media and people don't always have their names that correlate with their actual names in real life. And so, you know, people say things that they might not say to people if they were to meet them in person. And then there's like expectations that people have of us that we just can't live up to, right? I mean, people get mad at us all the time. They get mad at my moderators all the time. Why wasn't this allowed? Why wasn't that allowed? And I think people also tend to make it very personal. And that's hard for us because, well, we need uniform rules. We've got a whole team of people 
we can't say like this person's allowed to do this, but this person's allowed to do that. I mean, there's 162,000 physicians there. There's no way that we can have individual rules for individual people. And so that part, I think as the group has grown, we put in a lot more sort of absolute rules and we'll acknowledge when we delete stuff and say, we know this is not a perfect rule, but this is a uniform rule because otherwise it wouldn't be fair to you know, and whenever we go against those rules to make exceptions, inevitably we'll get 15 to 20 messages that are like, well, you took down my thing of this, but you didn't take down this. Why was this different? You know, it, it just creates so much work for us when we go against those rules that we've gotten a lot more stringent about making rules that last. Yeah, it's funny. Everybody wants this freedom to be toxic. It's just like, it doesn't make any sense. People want to, you know, express their opinions, but one thing that we do at Backtable with all of our social media channels is, is I just say, look, we're only putting out stuff that provides value. If somebody trolls us and wants to get into an argument, we just, we ignore them because it's not worth it because they're trolls. You don't feed the troll. But it, it's also just, yeah, if it's not providing value, then like, that's what social media needs more of, right? It needs positive energy, not more negative energy. I mean, my team sometimes will say things like, we felt bad about this. And I'm like, listen, this is energy that's draining. Like, we can't do anything to change this. There are going to be certain people that say things that other people are going to be offended by. Like, there are certain things. We can't regulate every single word that every single person says. And so to some degree, the members have to decide whether they're happy with the experience or not. But then there's other things where we're like, these are absolutes that we will not allow. And they are what they are. But all the rules are made to cater to the bigger group. And so when people come at me and they're like, well, we want this particular thing for us. And I'm like, we don't make the rules just for you. We make the rules for what's best for 160 something thousand people, right? So it may seem like it's not a great rule for your particular situation, but we don't have the bandwidth to make an individual set of rules for you. So either you like our rules and you stay or if you don't like you don't pay anything to be here so you can leave like that's it's up to you and so I think before I would try really hard to like listen to everybody's stories or try to get feedback about you know and I still try to get feedback but now I have sort of more of a boundary in terms of saying like this is just not something that we can do and if this is the experience you're looking for like you're probably not going to get it here and that's okay we're not for everyone you know but we really have to try to create actually like another thing that comes up a lot is Sometimes people want to put things out that I don't feel like would be good for physicians at, from a PR perspective. And although I would like to think that everybody keeps everything in the groups confidential, there are certain things that I think could make physicians look really bad if they were leaked if, without any sort of context, right? There are things that could just like a single screenshot could look really bad. And like my big goal is advocacy, right? And my big goal is how do we help solve that physician PR problem? So there are things that I will deny or decline or my team will decline on the groups because we're like, if this were ever to get out without any context, it would just look really bad that a physician was saying this or somebody was doing this thing and we just don't put it out there. And people are like, well, you're not letting us exercise our free speech. And we're kind of like, well, also we have a mission here to really try to elevate the profession and, and we're not going to do things that go against those standards either. So. I mean, once you reach a certain size, it is hard to have that discussion with every person that wants to do that. There are people with agendas, right? And you can't serve everybody's agenda. That makes sense. And you also can't make time to like hear everybody, every agenda out. 
No, you just don't have the bandwidth at some point. And I think that that's like something that's hard for people to understand at times. And it's hard because I want to have an individual sort of relationship with everybody in the group. But then cumulatively, there's just too many people. So people will get frustrated where they'll be like, hey, can you just give me your phone number? I want to talk to you about something. And I'm kind of like, no, actually, I can't do that right now. Putting those boundaries around for me has been really hard because it started out I really wanted it to be very personal and I still do, but you know, I'm like, put it on the group. We can like have a group discussion about it. You know, I can't do individual conversations or I can't do individual this, that, and the other thing, but there's always growing pains. I think the big thing is, are we creating, you want to get to a point where the community is powerful enough that it exists without your individual everyday need to be involved because everybody's supporting each other. Right. And Hopefully, once you have that critical mass of people, there's somebody in that group that can answer any question and it doesn't necessarily have to be me or my team or whoever because there's somebody else that can answer it. So, yeah, I think people just forget like how it's hard to put it into context, right? Like the other time my kids were like comparing me to some YouTuber of theirs, right? And they were like, oh, he's got this many million followers. And I was like, guys, like. I get it. I was like, I understand. There's not a lot of doctors in the U.S., but I was like, if you were to take 162,000 people and try to fit them into a football stadium, that would be really hard. So it's actually like, think about it in that context and realize like, there's going to be different personalities. There's a lot of different people. And sometimes people expect that physicians are a very homogenous, like, we're all obviously going to agree on this. And then these fights will come up and people are like, I can't believe that person's a physician. And you're like, it's a lot of people for their, like, and with that many people, there's going to be differences. And People are going to say things and you can either kind of move on and say this is something that they defer on or you could make it a huge deal and say this whole group stinks because one person said this thing. And and with that's a lot of physicians and there's a lot of people out there who want to get in front of physicians, outside forces that want to get in front, you know, and, and so you have to police that as well, right? Like, okay, who's going to be, who makes a good sponsor that represents a good business, for example, if it's disability insurance, something like that. I'm sure you have to vet all those very carefully as well, right? I think our partnerships are, people don't realize, I was actually just saying this to someone this morning who offered us like $50 for the year to advertise. And I was like, I don't think you understand. There's a lot that goes into our partnerships. It is a vetting process. We hear about if things go well, we hear about that. If things don't go well, we hear about that. Like we want to make sure that we're connecting people to the best people and the best advocates for physicians that we can. And we've had companies offer us a lot of money to do things like advertise telemedicine jobs where doctors get paid $7 per consult. And I'm like, no, thank you. You know, like you couldn't pay me enough money to sell out my profession like that. So there are certain things where each of those partnerships takes a lot of energy, both on the vetting side and on the maintenance side. And I don't think people necessarily realize that. They're like, oh, whatever, all you do is post a link or all you do is post a picture or something like that. And you're like, no, there is so much that goes into each of these things to make sure that we're like doing right by everyone. Yeah. Going back to what your kids were saying about the follower, because we talk about Mr. Beast a lot in our household. Oh, yeah. We talk about Mr. Beast a lot in our house, too. In fact, we spent time in L.A. to visit friends. I'm pretty sure my kids spent half the time thinking about if every Tesla was Mr. Beast. So oh, yeah. We were there. Do they go get a Beast burger? Yeah, it's, it is interesting how they're growing up and they, they look, because, I mean, that's Mr. Beast's platform is like growing this huge followership and it's all that's what YouTube's all about, right? And that's how you make money on YouTube. And so they do kind of laugh when they look at, you know, our back table numbers. And I'm like, no guys, you don't understand. Like there's only there's only like twelve thousand IRs in the world and, you know, we have like thirty percent of them listening to our show. Like 
That's incredible. That is incredible. That's something we're very proud of, right? So we kind of joke about those sorts of things. I mean, that's the whole point is to just get in front of, you know, it doesn't happen overnight, like you mentioned before. It's what, 2016. So it, it took six, seven years to reach this number. And it took us five years to start reaching our numbers. It's impossible to do it overnight, to be that influential. And that's not even the goal is to be influential. It's just to reach people with good information. Yeah. I see a lot of people trying to build followings and they're just kind of asking willy nilly for people to follow them. And I'm kind of like, you know, I've never we've never advertised PSG. We've never advertised physician community. We have zero dollars in our marketing budget. We don't do any of that. But my goal has always been, can I create enough value that people tell their friends about it? Right. And to me, that's everything that we've grown has been through word of mouth. We've like never tried to increase the number of followers we have. Like I said, we have 25,000 people on the wait list waiting to join. So we're clearly like not even getting through the intake that we're getting in fast enough. So for us, it's really, I keep trying to tell people who are trying to build followings. I'm like, your goal is not to just get a thousand people to follow you. Like, what are you going to do with them when they follow you? Your goal is to build value from the beginning to the point where other people are telling people like, hey, I heard this on the Backtable podcast and I like get this great information here you should start listening too, right? That is both the cheapest and most effective way to grow a following is just to kind of do what you do best and then have other people spread the word for you. Obviously, there are reasons for people to have marketing budgets and spend all of those things. But like, if you go into something saying, hey, I'm going to create this business, and this is sort of what like venture capital does, right? Or you go ahead, pitch this idea to people, raise a bunch of money, and then you're like, now I'm going to find the people and now I'm going to find the customers. And it's the reason that so many startups fail, right? Because they've got an idea, but they don't have any idea how to execute it. And so for me, it's always been focused on the execution and then hopefully the rest of it will follow, you know. And I understand, I mean, if your idea is to build like a medical device, well, hey, you're going to need some money up front to be able to make that happen. But if your idea is to build a social media following or something like that, you really don't need a lot of money up front or a lot of advertising up front. Your goal is just to find people where they are and, and make the biggest impact. It's really time. It's your own time. and It's sweat equity. Yeah, it's sweat. Yeah, exactly. Well, we only have a few minutes left. It's been a great conversation talking to you about how you built this. I do want to talk a little bit about the side gigs that you have information about on the platform. And just going through the list on the website, there's investing, there's real estate, there's medical surveys consulting, speaking, telemedicine. Expert witness is another big one. I, I know several people doing that, really enjoy it. And then podcasting, which for anybody out there, I'm also happy to talk to people about podcasting and kind of how to do it in a sustainable way. There there are some things that it's not, it's not super easy, as you probably know, Nisha. Yeah, I think podcasting, everybody keeps asking me to start a podcast and I'm like, well, that is a lot of energy and a lot of commitment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, and then, you know, the following and I mean, it's, I, we don't need to, to hijack the conversation about pocket, but it is a lot of work for people out there, but it's a great way to disperse information. I love the medium for that, for that purpose. I love being on people's podcasts, running the podcast is, I imagine, a full-time job in and of itself. Yeah. yeah. So for the people out there, like you should definitely go check out the website for those things. Are, are there any, like, I wanted to ask you, are there any unique side gigs that you've seen throughout the years that are maybe not listed, but maybe eventually will get listed if you see enough traction or people doing them? Anything new that you've seen? I mean, I think if you go to our member side gigs 
page on our website, you'll see a lot of really cool things that people have done, right? They've started scrubs companies or they've started tea companies or they've they create products. We have a few people that make scarves that like are from their photography even or for me, like the funnest things to see are the people who are just really like monetizing a hobby that they really, really love. I think you have a lot of the classic side gigs, like you had mentioned. Real estate is really popular because it's so passive and can be done so passively. I think that's a great one for doctors. We get a lot of requests for telemedicine, consulting, expert witness. Like those are sort of the classic sorts of things. But my favorite ones are always the more unique ones. You know, people who are like woodworking or people who are opening a restaurant or opening a food truck or yeah, I mean, we've had so many really cool things where people are able to then take those things to the next level, but they're initially fueled by just, I really like to do this and I want to be able to do it more. And it would be great if some of my professional time was actually spent drawing or spent taking pictures or spent making things. So yeah, I mean, I, I really love like the more unique thing. I think as doctors, we all like had all these interests that somehow got put aside when we made it through the process of like med school, starting families, starting our careers, all of those things. And I really love seeing people go back to like, oh, when I was in college, I really liked doing this. Now I'd like to take it back up as a hobby and potentially even turn it into a business. So those are always my favorite ones. We have one family on there that actually has a tea company that like the two, they're both doctors, but they will go to India and like source teas with their kids and have come back and started a company to sell tea. And I think that that's like so awesome that they now have this family sort of side gig that they are doing, you know, writing books. I feel like some people have just written, I have a whole collection of books that members of our group have written. And I just like love it because it's like my little side gig wall of, of doctors that have written books. And some of them are fiction, some of them are nonfiction, but it's really cool to see what's in people's heads and see them like having an outlet to express those things. We've actually had, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but we've had a couple docs who've started locums companies or job finding companies and like doing it in a sort of a unique way that's not so um, annoying as- Recruitery. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Again, it's like, it's like you doing what you do and me doing what I do. It's kind of like, you know what docs are looking for. We're physicians. We're married to physicians. We know where we can provide value. It's just a matter of taking the time to, to pursue these, these endeavors. And it's actually interesting, like when you bring up some of those things, there's things that so many of us think could be solved so easily. And then you get into the weeds of it and you're like, oh, actually, this is this is a lot more of a complicated problem than I realized. And logistically, like this thing that I've been complaining about actually is there for a reason. That's a really interesting viewpoint for all of us to have where we're assuming X would be so easy or Y would be so easy when we're thinking about change in the system. It's important that the doctors are getting involved in all of those levels so they can actually see what's tangible or like what's feasible and what's not. Yeah. And you know what I think of when you said, Anisha, because we've been doing this since I was a resident. When I'm reviewing, like say a lung nodule for a biopsy, they bring the disc and I pop the disc in and it takes forever to load. It's some like weird EMR. I've been doing that for like 13 years. Why is there not a better way? Right. Right. And I'm not an IT guy. I don't have an engineering background or software background, but why have we not figured that out, right? Stuff like that, where you're just like, this could be way better. 
Well, and it's funny because like now I go to a whole bunch of like healthcare finance conferences or private equity things or things like that, venture capital led things. And they'll invite me in as a speaker or as a consultant and stuff. And all these people will be like handing me their pitch decks. And I look at some of them. I'm just like, this is not a problem. Like, I'm not sure how you got venture capital company X to fund you with this much money, but there is no product market fit here. There is no hope for adaptation here. And conversely, you'll see people with some great ideas where you're like, yes, if you could do this in this way, like every doctor in America would be on board with whatever this is. But it's so interesting because there is this huge dichotomy between what we need and what we feel like we want and what's being produced out there in the VC world because it has the right buzzword. So I love seeing doctors kind of crossing those territories and saying like, this is actually something we need in healthcare. Like, how do we make it happen? And then understanding on the ground what it means to put that solution together as opposed to just selling a hospital exec on some fancy pitch deck and then having more things shoved down the throats of everybody downstream and from the clinician side because like some, you know, company decided that they were going to quote unquote solve physician burnout and then like actually exacerbated it for all of us. Right. Like, right. Right. Um, yeah. Like EMRs. I mean, it's just like it's only made our lives. I wish I could write on paper again because EMRs are gotten so bad. I know we had a post on our group the other day about a surgeon, like an old school surgeon that literally just wrote one note that was like the patient or one sentence. And it was like, the patient is fine. Like <laughs> send me, I send back PRN or whatever, like discharge from my care. And I was like, ah, oh, like I've never in my career been able to write a note like that. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, so we're at the hour and I don't want, you know, I appreciate your time and, and, you know, I wanted to get some final thoughts from you as we've been talking Throughout this whole, uh, up until just now, we really have gotten away from talking about burnout. And, and I, I like the fact that it's not all doom and gloom. And I, my passion project, Side Gig Backtable, has really given me and my wife a lot of energy. And honestly, it's been a nice balance to my clinical practice. And I think that the one thing I like seeing, because it's not just me, I, we've got a team of like a dozen hosts, is it seems to give everybody energy. And what I've liked about it is it, it seems to be empowering us as a group. And I know your platform is definitely empowering people with the information that you give out. I wanted to finish up with getting some advice from you to young docs just getting out of training. How do you get them to empower themselves from the get-go so they don't go through the same... I mean, everybody's got to go through challenges, right? But maybe just not the same challenges that we've undergone to get us to this point. One of the things that has been ingrained into a lot of people who have graduated in the last decade is that they're basically this widget that has to come through and do all the things the way that they're told to do it, right? So my biggest piece of advice to everyone is really put some thought into what it is that you actually want from your career and what you want your life to look like and then set out to build that life, right? Build the life that the hospital administrator wants you to build. Don't build the life because that's why we're all burning out, right? And that's why about half of the workforce wants to leave in the next five years, right? And that's not great. Like we all, my goal is to be able to practice radiology in some way, shape or form until I'm like 70 years old, right? But I want to be able to love my job and I want to be able to do it on my own terms and doing that requires thinking outside of the box a little bit and really saying, well, how am I going to make that possible? How am I going to get some leverage at the negotiating table to negotiate the life that I want? And so don't be a one trick pony. Try to think about what are the other things that I could do that will give me some leverage to be able to cut back a little here, do a little bit more of this, do a little bit more of 
the things that make me happy, give me the hours I want. Whatever it is that you think is going to give you that career longevity, it's really important to kind of sit down and sort of do that SWOT analysis on your life, right? Like people do that in the business world a lot in terms of the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats and saying, okay, what are the things that I really like and that are going to make me want to do this for the next 30 years? What are the things that are really threatening my career longevity and make me want to walk away? And then also, what opportunities do I have to be able to take some of those weaknesses off the table or those threats off the table and increase the strengths so that I do this happily, right? We've worked very hard not to be unhappy. We've worked really hard to be able to kind of fulfill our mission in the way that we want to be able to fulfill it. And that takes a little bit of thought in terms of how you are going to approach that. And so many of us come out of training just beaten down by the expectations that we have or that other people have of us and just like bogged down by student loans and the practicalities of a young family and all of those things. And we just think we can't. And the answer is not that we can't. We're all very capable people who have done really great things, right? We learned how to save human lives. We can learn how to create the lives that we want. It just really requires us to kind of step back for five minutes and say, okay, I've gone through this period of time where everybody told me what to do and what exams to take and how exactly and when, and actually think about what I want for my life and how I'm going to make that life for myself. Right. Don't continue that same pathway where you, I mean, nothing against big radiology groups, but some lure you with partnership tracks, with all these perks that it might not be the best thing for you. It might just be something that you've been told that you want or need think about it, right? Because they can lock you into sort of a no return kind of situation, at least financially. I know we're running out of time, but I think just one point to that is really think about how much money you really feel like you need to earn. Because a lot of people just kind of get stuck in this sort of more is better mentality and in doing so kind of sacrifice their happiness, their family's happiness. And that leads to a lot of other things. I think as our opportunities grew, we as a family really had to sit down and think and say, well, what kind of money do we actually need to earn to sustain the lifestyle that we want? And then plan everything around that, right? There's some practicalities that we had to plan around. But other than that, at some point, you're putting money in a bank account that you're probably never going to see and that your kids are going to see or somebody two generations from now is going to see. And I think for us, like we're at that point now where I'm like, I'm not going to work harder on things that I don't like so that some punk can go buy like Alexis when he's 16. That's not my job. My job is to make my family happy in this moment. (laughs) If I'm doing something because it makes me happy or because I think it's good for the profession, that's great. But I'm not doing it to chase a paycheck so that some future generation can benefit from it. (laughs) I love that you referred to your great grand children as punks. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully they're not. But I mean, you know, I didn't get Alexis when I was 16, so I don't see any reason for them to. Yeah, exactly. Nisha, I think it's a good way to end it. (laughs) I appreciate your time and energy and I appreciate everything that you've put together for our colleagues. And uh, let me know if we can ever do anything else for you at Backtable. Backtable listeners, again, you can listen to all previous episodes. Some of the previous ones I've mentioned, especially the one with white co-investor James Dahl was actually really helpful with some of the things we've been talking about. And uh, yeah, it's they're all on Apple, Spotify, basically everywhere you get your podcast. So go take a listen and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon. 
with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 